John chapter 1 and verse 1. I want to consider with you Advent preparation. Officially, this Sunday, today, is the beginning, the commencement of Advent. So, uh, from now till December 25, Christmas Day, I will consider uh, themes of uh, connected to the Advent, of course. And then also in Sunday school for the adults, uh, I plan to do a small series on the characters uh, that are connected to the Advent. So, we will really be taken up in December with a consideration of uh, the Christmas theme, the Christmas story. John chapter 1 is a powerful verse. It's a famous verse, a very simple verse. It says, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John chapter 1, verse 1. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Now, Father, help us, we pray, as we come to this simple verse, so profound, but yet so necessary for us to grasp as we would go into the Christmas season, that we might remind ourselves of who Jesus is and why He came, that over the next month we might consider these great and glorious themes that remind us of the advent of Jesus how crucial it was that the Son of God came. And so we commit ourselves to you now. Thank you for your word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would help us, each one, to understand, to grasp the beauty and the glory and the wonder of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think I have to tell you that John chapter 1, surely, uh, is a very famous verse. It's caused a lot of trouble in the minds and hearts of many, many people. But John chapter 1, verse 1, essentially begins uh, what we know to be the introduction to the Gospel of John. We call it the prologue. Verses 1 through 18 uh, form the prologue, prologue to John's Gospel, this introduction to John's Gospel. What's significant about verses 1 through 18 is that all of the major themes that you come across in the Gospel of John are expounded after verse 18 throughout the Gospel. So here you have major themes that are just stated succinctly, simply, directly, and then in the life of Jesus, John begins to unfold throughout his Gospel the things that you find introduced here in verses 1 through 18. So the rest of the chapter, the rest of the gospel, is going to be taken up with an exposition, really, of what you read about in verses 1 through 18. Two verses stand out, don't they, in verses 1, or maybe three verses. First of all, verse 1, second verse 14, the Word became flesh, and then thirdly, verse 18, no one has seen God except the true God, the only God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has revealed Him. When you look at verses 1 and 2, you can see, for example, that we are introduced to somebody, to some person who is described as the Word, the Logos. When you read John chapter 17, for example, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus makes this startling comparison or statement. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began or before the world existed. When you look at what Jesus says 
In John chapter 17, he makes the pronouncement in his high priestly prayer that he had a glory with God before the existence of the world. And now when you come to John chapter 1, you read these simple words that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then the Word was God. And so we are confronted with a number of things as we look at this verse. John's prologue then, as you find it in verses 1 through 18, summarizes how the Word in verse 1 becomes flesh in verse 14. You look at verse 14, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So how did this Word, in verse 1, who was in the beginning with God, was God, suddenly, in verse 14, become flesh? What a mystery, right? That's the incarnation as we read it in verse 14. How this word, in verse 1, who existed, we are said, in the beginning, and then, in verse 14, exists in time and in space. In fact, it's a bold declaration, isn't it, by the Apostle John, that, that the word of verse 1, who becomes flesh, in verse 14, is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So that this word who was in the beginning with God and was God, who then became flesh, is none other than the Jesus who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. John's gospel is all about proving that truth. That Jesus existed before the world began. That Jesus took to himself humanity, flesh, came into our world, lived, died, rose again, went back to glory in heaven. John's gospel is the proof that the Word and Jesus of Nazareth are really one and the same. Now, Christmas is approaching. Can you believe it? Christmas is already upon us. As Christmas comes, we tend to fix our hearts and minds on the incarnation, right? Which is verse 14, the Word became flesh. We're taken up with the Christmas story. We read about it in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, Luke's gospel, chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. Those narratives of Matthew and Luke tell us the story behind and the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. When John talks to us about incarnation, it's just a few words. The word became flesh. More importantly, perhaps for us, he dwelt among us. And we have seen, John says, his glory. And glory belongs to God. So you see, John, by verse 1, says he is God. Then says he became flesh. Then says we saw his glory. And then in verse 18, we'll say that he's the only God who's at the side of God himself. What these verses, or perhaps I should say verse 1, unfolds for us is the very preparation we need for Christmas. The very preparation you need and I need to enter in to this Christmas season, to the month of December. When I look at verse 1, I simply call it a revelation of the glorious Son of God. In fact, so boldly, uncompromisingly, directly, John states in his opening verse, all that he's concerned about as far as Jesus 
of Nazareth is concerned. I want to break verse 1 down into four statements. In the Greek text, there really are three statements. They're like this. Here are my four statements. Number one, in the beginning. That's the first statement, in the beginning. Number two, was the word. Generally, that's regarded as one statement, in the beginning was the word. Then thirdly, and the word was with God. And finally, the word was God. Uh, that's a simple outline, isn't it? Can't forget that. But there it is. Yet how profound it is. How incredible I think it is. Now, when you look at John 1, verse 1 and verse 2, they point us to two incredible truths. And here they are. The first truth is that this is about someone pre-existent. Or, as we know, the pre-existent Son of God. That's the first truth. The second truth is that this Son is also pre-incarnate. So we have a pre-existent and a pre-incarnate Son of God. Notice verse 14. Verse 14 identifies the Word. Look at the verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son. So notice how John identifies that the Word who became flesh is the only Son who is, of course, in verse 17, none other than Jesus Christ who is said to be, in verse 18, at the Father's side, the only God. The only God. So you notice how John progresses. And so if you were to read the text or look at verses 1 through 18, and you go back to verse 1, in simple terms it would be something like this. The Word is the Son, who is Jesus, who is God. Right? That's the progression from verses 1 through 18. The Word is the Son, who is Jesus, who is God. How powerful that is, right? John wishes us to be under no illusion, make no mistake, that what he is unfolding and going to write about is none other than Jesus being the Son of God, who is called the Word, or the Logos, as we know it. But John 1.1 raises questions, doesn't it? Because what does John mean by in the beginning? In the beginning of what? What is this beginning that John is speaking about here? Uh, what or who exactly is the Word who is said to have been in the beginning? Is this Word divine or is this Word created? Those questions must be answered from verse 1. Not only that, but why the use of the phrase, the Word? In the beginning was the Word. Why the Word? Why the Logos? What does that mean? And so... I want to begin by looking at, firstly, this phrase, in the beginning. We talk about beginning. We obviously connect beginning, the idea of beginning, the word beginning, with time. It's just a natural connection that we make, right? And that phrase, in the beginning, of course, takes us immediately to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's just the opening verse of our Bibles in the beginning. When you read John, sorry, when you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it's all about creation, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, in the beginning, there was this creation that was undertaken. Here, 
you'll notice in verse 3 of John 1 that John refers to that creation, doesn't he? In fact, in verse 3 he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John is speaking about creation. He includes creation, the creation of all things. When you read the Apostle Paul writing to the Colossians, he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus, who made all things in John 1 verse 3, in Colossians 1.17 is said to be before all things that were made. So simply put by those two verses, we understand that before creation, the Word existed. The Word was. And John, remarkably, moves from this material creation out of nothing in John 1.1, or John 1.3, I should say, taken, Going back to Genesis 1.1, he moves to a different kind of creation in the gospel in chapter 3 when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, a new creation. So John unfolds for us that the word was there in the beginning, it would appear when all things were made. Not only that, but in John's gospel, what is particular to John is the unfolding of the doctrine of regeneration or the doctrine of salvation, a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are what? a new creature, a new creation. And so the unfolding of salvation or redemption or regeneration or justification uh, throughout John as he speaks of these things in terms of salvation is that he moves from just a material creation to a spiritual new life, spiritual creation. When you read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then you read John 1.1 in the was the word there's no question that we're talking about something that's absolute something that's definite definitive just a blank statement that we are expected to believe and to say is the truth we can definitely say it is not the beginning of God God has no beginning so when we talk about in the beginning we don't mean the beginning of God and we certainly don't mean the beginning of the word because when this beginning happened the Word was there. So in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. In other words, both existed already when John uses the phrase about them both in the beginning. In fact, Colossians 1 verse 18 says that Jesus, He is the beginning. He Himself is the beginning. Whatever is meant by the beginning... We must understand it, certainly, that God was already there. And not only that, but the Word Himself was already there. That's the opening line. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word beginning often refers to the word origin. The Word, in verse 3, is the originator of all things. He's the creator of all things. So at the time of creation, Genesis 1.1, and before creation, the Word existed and God existed. Now, you know, that's what we confess, dear congregation. That's what we believe. We believe that there was a time in the beginning, in Genesis 1.1, when God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that in the beginning was the Word, 
who was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning and therefore is not just at the time of creation but is before and prior to creation because all things came into being through him as Colossians 1.17 says. The ancient heretic Arius, as you know, got it all wrong, didn't he? And so too do the modern day Jehovah's Witnesses, the followers of Arius, get it wrong because Arius said there was once when he was not. In other words, there was a time when he did not exist. The Word. There was a time when Jesus of Nazareth, as a result, going back to the Son of God, had no existence. Of course, that is absolute heresy and wrong. No, what we discover, if we pay attention to John, is that the Word was, or to put it another way, the Word always was. Always was. So how do you know that? Remember the famous statement by Jesus in John chapter 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, right? Which of course is derived, the I am, from Exodus three fourteen, when God says to Moses, tell them I am has sent you, the ever-present, eternal, existent God. He's the one who's sending you, Moses. Jesus, of course, says before Abraham was, I am, Right? What's, what's interesting about that statement is that when Jesus says before Abraham was, the little word was is the word that means to come into being, to come into existence. But when Jesus says, ego me, I am, he is using the imperfect word was to mean a continued existence. I've always had existence. Before Abraham came into existence, into being, I already was. I have always been. You might say, well, okay, what's significant about that? What's significant about that is that the Jews wanted to stone Jesus. Why? Because he was making himself God. That's why. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, they understand him to mean, I am God. And Abraham only exists because of me. And so do you and everybody else and so on. You all come into existence, but I have always been existing. Isn't time a fascinating concept? A lot of movies, by the way, today, science fiction, they all try to deal with time, explain time. They come up with fanciful ideas about time, the inversion of time, and all this kind of stuff. But time is an interesting concept because you're aware of it. In fact, we have watches. There's a clock at the back. Time. We are bound to time. We are creatures of time. We live in time. We go to bed because it gets dark at night. We wake up in the morning. We go to work because it's daylight. We revolve our entire lives around this whole concept of time. Time itself, of course, is a created thing. Because there once was a time when there was no time. Right? Time is a physical concept. It's a measurable concept. Second after second after second. You measure it, you see it, whatever it is. But eternity is timeless. Because eternity is a spiritual concept that is immeasurable. Right? I mean, we think of eternity as forever and ever. In fact, the only way we can think of eternity is to conceive of it as time never ending. So we, we bring our finite concept 
time and we impose it onto eternity or forever and ever as being time onwards and onwards and onwards and onwards. But in the beginning, either at creation and certainly before creation, we can say from what John is said, saying in the beginning, this word was there and he was with God and he was God. That's the first thing, in the beginning. Secondly, notice in the beginning was the word, right? The word is the logos. This is the, the, the Greek word that's used. Very common word, by the way. For instance, the Stoics, the ancient Stoics, they used it to refer to the rational principle by which everything exists. Something out there, the Logos, by which all things exist. Some say that the Logos is the human soul because it's rational or reasonable. Philo the Jew follows Plato when he says that the Logos is the ideal world but on the other hand, it's distinguished from the real world. What that really is, a Jew, is a dualistic theory of the immaterial versus the material. So much so that the immaterial, the logos, the ideal world, is not the real, the material, but what is most important is that immaterial concept. See the logos as an inner thought, reason, science, in general use, Logos is simply an outward expression, a message, a speech, words. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message or the word of the cross is the Logos of the cross. That's what Paul writes, the Logos of the cross, the preaching of the cross, the message of the cross, the speech of the cross. But when we come to John, how does John use the Logos, or this title, the Word? How am I going to understand, well, what do you mean by the Word, John, when you say, in the beginning was the Word? What do you mean by that? If I were to ask you, well, how would you know what the Word is? What would you say? There's only one place you can go to, right? The Old Testament. It's the only place you have to go. To find it. And this is the Old Testament that helps us. In fact, the common Hebrew word for word is the word davar. So, Genesis 1.3, And God said, let there be light. His word, his davar, God spoke, God said, let there be light. That's the Hebrew word. What do we get when we look at Genesis 1.3, And God said, let there be light. It is God's powerful work by His Word in creating. That's what you have. Let there be light, there's light. Not only that, but the prophet Jeremiah often says over and over again, the Word of the Lord came to me. The Word of the Lord came to me. The Devar of the Lord came to me. And what's he talking about? The revelation that I received from God was spoken to me. I received it from God. Or, as the psalmist says, Psalm 107, verse 20, He sent out His devour. He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. In other words, the word is a delivering, powerful thing. So now we know from the Old Testament that when God speaks, it's powerful, it's creative. 
When God speaks, it's revelatory, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet and others. It's a word that has the power to deliver. It delivers people by their word. So here's what we have. When you read your Old Testament and God speaks, and by the way, God speaks everywhere, doesn't he, in the Old Testament? When God speaks in the Old Testament, it is always powerful. It is always creative. It is always revelatory. And it is always, sometimes I should say, with judgment. God speaks in judgment. And when you put all that together and you look at the ways God speaks in those ways, in the Old Testament then, the Word, or God's Word, is His powerful self-expression by creation, or by revelation, or in redemption. God saving a people. He speaks. He delivers them. God creating things. He speaks and things exist. God speaking and revealing Himself and a message to the prophets to deliver on His behalf. God's Word is a powerful self-expression in creation, in revelation, and in redemption. Or to put it this way, it is God's ultimate self-disclosure. Because when God speaks, He shows you Himself. When God speaks, He reveals who He is. That's John's Logos. That's what John means. Because John is filled with the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, the Old Testament Scriptures for John are the authoritative Word of God. He meditates in the Old Testament. In fact, more than any other writer, perhaps, John saturates his writings, the epistles, and certainly the book of Revelation, with the Old Testament. He's very familiar with it. So, the Logos, who is the Word in John 1.1, is the ultimate self-disclosure of God. That's why you have verse 14. And the Word became flesh. God revealed Himself. Right? The word became flesh is Emmanuel, isn't it? God with us. So this is why John then, when he says in the beginning was the word, is able to go to the next two phrases. The word was with God and the word was God. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. But let's ask ourselves firstly then, what does John mean by the word was with God? First thing you can say is that he's talking about a separate person from God, isn't he? The word here was with God here. So you have, you have two entities, you have two subsistences, you have two persons if you like. You have the word here and you have God here and the word was with God. His face, the word is turned towards God face to face, as it were, with God. He means then that the Word is a separate person. Or to put it another way, when he says was with God, he implies that there's a relationship, a connection, between the Word on the one hand and God on the other hand by that little connecting word, with. The Word was with God. But the question is, how do you know the Word, the Logos, is a person? This is a very important question. How do you know that the Word who was in the beginning is a person? Now look at verse 2. What is verse 2? Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. The word He is the Greek word hutos, 
which the King James translates quite correctly, the same. So the same was in the beginning. The same meaning the word was in the beginning with God. Or this one, this one, hutos, this one was in the beginning with God. Who's this one? This one is the word, right? Not some impersonal force, but the same. Demonstrative pronoun, the word. But then when you look at verse 3, because verse 3 says, In Him, personal pronoun. Personal pronoun, he, she, it, right? Personal pronoun. In Him was life, verse 4, right? Sorry, verse 3, all things were made through Him, without Him, so the person. Verse 4, He is life, He is light, it's a He. But then notice verse 7. Well, we'll connect with verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He. John. Right? The Greek word is hutos. The same. This one. This one, John, came as a witness. So, now we look at John the Baptist and John uses the same word, demonstrative pronoun, hutos, as he does in verse 2. But when you think about John the Baptist, you think of him as a person. You don't even debate. Of course John the Baptist is a person, right? We know that. But then, continue in the text, it says that in verse 8, He, John the Baptist, was not the light, came to bear witness about the light. Then verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, the light, the true light, was in the world. So, as you go down through the passage, verse 10, He was in the world, the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Verse 11, He came to His own, His own people did not receive Him. There's no question this is about a person, right? The Word is a person. There's no question about that. And which is how exactly John goes on to end in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, became a, fle a man. So, what we have, the word was with God, is a relationship from a person to a person. From the word to God, there's this relationship, yet they are separated, are they not, from each other, right? The word is here, the God is here, but there's a connection to them. I think that's clear on the surface. Certainly a person. But there's this part at the end, the fourth phrase, and the Word was God. When John says the Word was with God, he means a separate existent person. He means someone distinct, in a, but in a special relationship with God. Now we find that he says that the Word actually is God. So the Word is separated from God in the the third phrase, but now the word is actually said to be God. To be God. So here are two persons. Notice them. Here is God, and here is the word. When you look at verse 14, you notice that God is the Father, and the word, the Logos, is the Son. Verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the only Son is the Logos, and the Father is none other than God Himself. And yet, John says the Word is God. The Word is God. 
Oh, what trouble this verse has caused people, right? Notice that John does not say, does not say, God was the Word. Now, if you read the Greek text literally, it says, God was the Word. But the Word is the subject. And so, the Word was God. So, it does not say God was the Word. Because if he said God was the Word, then the previous phrase, right, the Word was with God, would mean nothing because they would be blend, blended together. The Word and God, just the same. So when it says the Word was with God, just one and the same. Therefore the Word is God. So he doesn't do that. He's very careful. He's very particular. He doesn't blend. No, number one, John is careful to maintain a separate personal existence and a separate distinction, and then also to show that between those separate beings or persons is a relationship between God and the Word, verse 1, between the Father and the Son, in verse 14. Please note that we must never say that the Word was a God. We must never say that the Word was a God. Now, you know why people say the Word was a God? Simply because theos in the Greek New Testament does not have the definite article. But we don't need the definite article when we talk about God to say the God, the God. We just say God, and we know God is definite. We don't need to have a definite article before theos for us to know that we mean God is definite by Himself. So, the fact that lacks the article in verse 1 has caused people to insert the indefinite article, He is a God. Okay? But there are certain Greek rules, Colwell's rules, Granville Sharp rule, Greek grammatical rules that eliminate any translation of a God. We must never translate this as a God. But let me show you why. Okay? There are four other verses here in John where God, Theos, does not have the article. So, look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God. No article. We don't say there was a man sent from a God. Nobody's ever said that. Right? Nobody's ever said there was a man sent from a God. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not children of a God. Right? Nobody ever says that. Or look at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the, or, or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No article, but nobody says, but of a God. Right? And then if you look at verse 18, twice. No one has seen God. Right? No one has seen a God. No. What we find is that every reference to theos, to God, means definite. The God. God. We don't need to have the article to know that John is talking about God. Now, having said that, go back to verse 2. He was in the beginning with the God. And here the article is inserted in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. We don't, whether the article is there or not, we don't translate it, a God, the God, alright? 
You'll notice that's exactly how we read it in the translation. He was in the beginning with God. But verse 2 has the definite article before God or before Theos, but it doesn't have it in verse 1. Now what's John doing? Now here's the thing. John is keeping distinct and John is keeping separate the word who is God, verse 1, from God himself, God the Father, from verse 14. So he's telling us there are two separate persons, yet these two persons are God. The same God. One God. So what, what has John done? Now here's the remarkable thing, right? John has given to us the Logos, the eternal word, as the eternally pre-existing, pre-incarnate, uncreated, personal Son of God. That's what he's done in just one verse. He has declared to us that this word was pre-existent, pre-incarnate, personal, self-disclosing himself as God, yet distinct from God the Father, and as we know, of course, from the New Testament, from God the Holy Spirit. Which God, or which Logos, in verse 14, will become flesh and live among us? So who actually lived among men and women in the first century? The eternal God. That's Isaiah's Emmanuel, God with Notice, not man with us, though he is fully man, he became flesh, but God with us, fully God. We must be very careful that we don't divide God when we talk about the Son, as this is God and this is flesh or humanity. Jesus is one person who has two natures, not two persons who are somehow dividing themselves. One person, because he always was God, who adds to himself not another person, but who adds to himself another nature, humanity, our flesh, so that he can truly now be said to be, as he always has been, fully God, but he is now also fully man at the same time. And then what John wants to do is to take this magnificent theological statement that he's made and said, I'm going to show you Jesus of Nazareth. That's him. That's him. So when John the Baptist says, as Jesus passes by, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that's truly who he is. God, in the flesh, to take away our sin. Can he do it? Yes, because he's God. Right? Okay, now, having said that, I want to just talk a little bit about two important concepts which I've mentioned already. Number one, pre-existence. And number two, pre-incarnate. What do we mean by pre-existence or pre-incarnate? Because we often say the Lord Jesus Christ was pre-existent or the pre-incarnate Christ. What do we mean by that? One thing we can say when we talk about pre-existence or pre-incarnate, we must know that both refer to existence. That the person we're talking about, the Son of God, the Word, who's going to become flesh, who was with God and was God, before He became flesh, was in existence as the Son of God. Pre-existence is supported by three things. 
And here they are. Number one, the Son is eternal. Well, if He's eternal, He pre-existed. Right? He's without beginning, has no beginning, is uncreated. He always has been. He's eternal. Number two, Son is equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, of course. How do we know they're equal? They all possess the same attributes. Whether those are communicable attributes that can be passed on, that we can emulate, or incommunicable attributes like omniscience or omnipotence. All of them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, possess exactly the same attributes. We know that. Yet, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are separate individuals, separate persons. In fact, John 1.1 1, 1 has told us there are two already, the Word and God. They're individual persons within the Trinity, yet we confess we do not have three gods. We have one God, three persons, who revealed themselves as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Equal. No distinction between them, no subordination between them, the same. Thirdly, they are of the same essence then. What do we mean by essence? They're undivided. God cannot be cut up in parts or divided like this part is God or this mode is the Father and that mode is the Son at different times or that mode is the Holy Spirit. No, they're individual, they're separate, yet they're the same. We confess dear brothers and sisters, that God is a pure spirit. Pure spirit, not divisible in nature or in being. This is our God whose subsistence is in and of Himself alone. He is infinite in being and infinite in perfection. He is invisible without body, without parts, without passion. He is immortal. He is immutable. He is immense. He is incomprehensible. He is infinite. He is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. And all of that leads to one simple statement about your God. He is absolutely glorious and perfectly good. That's our God. That's the God of the Bible. That's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who, by the way, and here's the application, is the only foundation of all of your communion and fellowship with God. You only have fellowship with God because of who God is in His triunity. You can have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. Now if that's God, and look at myself, I'm created and I'm sinful. I am utterly dependent upon that God for life, to breathe, right, to exhale, God, I exist because God gives me life, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, he is life itself, our Lord Jesus Christ, so I'm totally dependent for all things upon such a glorious being as the God of scripture. All right, that's pre-existence. What about pre-incarnate? How do I know that the Word was pre-incarnate when it says He was with God and He was God? How do I know that He's pre-incarnate? Well, you've read your Old Testament, haven't you? Do you find Jesus in the Old Testament? He's everywhere, right? 
He's everywhere. For instance, Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel promise. And the first gospel promise is about the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we find these things. We find these descriptions. He is the Christophany or the Theophany. The angel of the Lord. Every time you read the angel, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, it's Jesus Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. He is Messiah, the anointed one. He is Emmanuel, right? God with us. He is, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, wonderful counselor, right? Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah, we read this morning, chapter 52, 53, he is the suffering servant of the Lord. He is the righteous branch of Jeremiah. He is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. He is the pierced Lord of Zechariah. And he is the messenger of the covenant in Malachi. The prophets are saturated with Jesus Christ everywhere. The person of our Lord. You can't escape it when you read to the Old Testament scriptures. They are so eloquent about Christ. Secondly, the prophets in the Old Testament, they prophesy about Jesus. They talk about his divine nature and they talk about his human suffering. And they can't quite get their minds around how the divine God can be man and yet suffer and die. It's beyond them. How is it possible? And so, when you read about the prophets in the Old Testament defining Christ as divine and defining Christ as human, the New Testament writers unequivocally, unhesitatingly apply all that the prophets said to Jesus of Nazareth. Now think about that for a moment. Here you've got this man walking around among you who suddenly is, he dies, is buried, and he rises from the dead. And now your mind starts to come to grips with, who is this? There have been glimpses of Jesus by the disciples as to his divine nature, right? On the Sea of Galilee in the storm. Or when he raises Lazarus from the dead or Jairus' daughter from the dead. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration, that majestic voice we heard, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All of those experiences you would think would have convinced the disciples before the death of Jesus that he is, there's no question, he fulfills the Old Testament. Well, they did believe that, but how shocked they were when he died. But the resurrection took care of it all, didn't it? And these New Testament authors later on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Paul, Peter, Jude, they all unhesitatingly take what the prophet said in the Old Testament and say, that's Jesus. That's Christ. In Genesis 3.15, Satan will be crushed on his head by the seed of the woman. The Apostle Paul, you know, when he writes to the Romans, in the very last chapter, in chapter 16, verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What kind of imagery is that? Genesis 3.15, imagery. Psalm 2.7, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Or Psalm 102, 25 through 27. In Hebrews chapter 1, 10, 11 and 12. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Speaking of Jesus. And then he says the heavens are going to be rolled up like a scroll and, and vanish away. But you remain. You are the same. You have no end to your years. That's Psalm 102. That's Hebrews chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus. Or how about Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 says. Have any of, did God ever say to any of the angels, sit at my right hand? No, he said it to his son. Jesus is everywhere, dear congregation. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Isaiah 7.14, Matthew 1.23, the fulfillment of it. Isaiah 9.6, in Luke 1, he is the son of the highest, he is the son of God. Isaiah 52, 53, was numbered for our transgressions, Luke chapter 22. On and on we go, right? Even the birthplace of Jesus, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though the least among the clans of Judah, out of you shall come forth one who is of ancient age, the Son of God, right? Which, of course, you read about in Matthew chapter 2. Or the Son of Man in Daniel 7 who approaches the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom who is none other than the Son of Man in all the Gospels, our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall look on Him whom they have pierced, Zechariah chapter 12, which John chapter 19 quotes, being fulfilled in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. In Malachi 3.1, this is the messenger of the covenant. Not the messenger who goes before, that's John the Baptist, Malachi 3.1, but then the messenger of the covenant is none other than Jesus. You know there's a remarkable, you know that remarkable passage, Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah is in the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, he says. And there were these seraphim, or cherubim, and they, they're flying back and forth, their wings touch each other, and, and they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The building is shaking. There's smoke everywhere. Isaiah says, Woe is me. I am undone. I am a ruined man because I dwell among people of ruined lips. One of the angels flies and takes an, a coal from the altar with tongs and touches his mouth. Says, You've been cleansed of your iniquity. What, for what purpose? So that God would send him to the nation to be a prophet. But here's the interesting thing. I saw the Lord, he says. Now let me show you from John's Gospel. Just turn to chapter 12. Look at John chapter 12, verse 40. John 12. Well, we'll back up a bit. Verse 37, John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53.1 Therefore they could not believe. Verse 39 For again Isaiah says, here he's quoting Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest their eyes, they see with their eyes, understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now look at verse 41. 
Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory in Isaiah 6 did Isaiah see? The glory of Jesus. That's who he saw. That's what it says here. This is the Lord. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. You know there are innumerable references to the names of God in the Old Testament, right? The names of God. Let me give you two that were introduced to you in the very first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God, Elohim, the Almighty God, the Creator. In the beginning, Elohim. But then, in chapter 2, verse 4, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. The Lord God. Now He becomes personal. The covenant-keeping God. Creator, Almighty now brings himself to disclose himself in chapter 2 of Genesis as the Lord God, your God, personal, covenant God in relationship with man. You know, Isaiah has so many references to Yahweh, to Yahweh, which the New Testament unhesitatingly affirms as Jesus of Nazareth. That the Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament. That's what the prophets affirm over and over again. Or take, for example, thirdly, the promises of God in the Old Testament. All the promises of God prefigured by shadows and by types and by copies. So, for instance, you have the Old Testament sacrifices. Thousands of them. Millions of them. All pointing to the promised Lamb who would come. All showing, foreshadowing Jesus. Or think about the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. Jesus speaks of the temple of his body. And we belong to the temple of God. Or think about the servant of the Lord passages. Or the son of man passages. Or the Passover passages. Or the manna in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. I'm the true manna. I'm the true Passover lamb. All of the promises of God foreshadowed in the Old Testament are fulfilled literally in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say to you this morning, all of that is stuffed in to verse 1 of John 1. Crammed in there is this, this incredible array of truth concerning Jesus. That Jesus of Nazareth is truly God, fully God, who took to himself in verse 14 our humanity. And so as we go into Christmas this year, Christmas season, these are the truths that stand behind Bethlehem. You want to prepare yourself for Bethlehem, the actual incarnation? These are the truths about Jesus that stand behind the incarnation. But these are also the truths that stand behind Calvary, behind the cross. No Bethlehem, no Calvary. He must come for us to deliver himself. So, how do you prepare yourself for Advent? Let me give you three ways. Number one, the truth of John 1.1 requires confession. Requires confession. What do I mean by that? Listen to John in 1 John 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
Do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Or how about 1 John 2.23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You have the Father. If you confess the Son, you do. Or think about the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he unfolds the truth about Jesus. We confess the great truths that pertain to Christ. You see, to confess is to believe the truth. To confess is to confess the truth about Jesus. To confess the truth about Jesus ultimately is to be saved to possess Christ. It requires confession of faith. Do you believe? Because if you don't believe this, why would you believe verse 14? The word became flesh. Secondly, the truth of John 1.1 reflects consequences. It doesn't just require a confession, but it reflects consequences. There are consequences to this. Any relationship that we have with God is always in terms of a covenant. And the relationship we have, because Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, is the new covenant. We are in relationship to God. Not only that, but when you look at what John 1.1 is expounding, is that here is the deity of Christ. The Word was God who became man, the humanity of Christ in John 1 verse 14. That truth you must realize has consequences for your life. If you say Jesus is God and Jesus is man, there are consequences to that confession. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth. Not a truth, not one among many truths, the truth. The only truth, the only way, the only life. That's Jesus, that's what he said. Therefore I must believe because there are consequences to not believing. Judgment, wrath, condemnation. But to believe has consequences, right? And to believe Christ is to receive the gift of everlasting life, is to receive the forgiveness of my sins. Only God forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Thirdly, the truth of John 1.1 demands commitment. It demands commitment. You know why? Because this gospel saves. And if it saves, there are repercussions to that salvation. It doesn't just save us, but it sanctifies us. It's not just an initial, one-time act of salvation, but it's God, God, God in my life to the end, sanctifying me. Constant working of God in saving His people. What is all that about? It's about my transformation, right? I have been saved for a purpose. You have been saved for a purpose. To glorify God, to live for Him in the light of a relationship between you and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because all your communion depends upon the truth of the triune God. God's grace is sufficient to justify you. God's grace is sufficient every day to sanctify you. God's grace is sufficient to change your life from the very start of regeneration to the very time you see Christ. God's grace transforms us. It's a complete salvation, right? That we're talking about. That centers in the Word, in this Logos, who becomes flesh for us. 
You see, being a Christian is not like, like changing your clothes or changing your mind. We don't change our minds. God changed our minds. God changed our hearts. God gave us new life. We don't change ourselves. God transforms us by His powerful work. And it's a permanent work. And it's an ongoing work. And He does all of His sovereign saving and changing by His wonderful grace and His love for us. So, what are you going to do with John 1.1? Believe it. Right? Confess it. Receive it. Say, yep, I believe that. That is the truth. I know it's the truth. I know Jesus existed before He became flesh. He was the eternal Son of God. But He took humanity to Himself to save me. Grace and truth have come to us by Jesus Christ. This is what prepares us to worship the babe in the manger who truly is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this glorious John's chapter 1 verse 1. What a powerful verse. We confess it, we believe it, we rejoice in it, but we especially thank you for the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. May we, like John, be able to say this morning, I've seen a little bit of his glory, and I want to see more. I want to know the Savior. I want to know Emmanuel. I want to know the Lord God. I want to know Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, may we live our lives in the light of the truth that we read in your word. We pray that you would save us by grace. We pray that you would change us. We pray that you would transform us, that you would sanctify us, that you would continue to work out in us that which you have worked in us. What a wonderful salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Change us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, will you take your hymnals and...